American Chamber of Commerce in Ohio, where we have in-depth discussions and conversations with our members and high-profile speakers. We are excited to share with you our second episode with Brian Halliday and Marin Ritter, partners of Green and Spiegel, and Don Larson, the president of our chamber. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. You can find out more about the chamber at baccohio.org and feel free to get in touch with us at info at baccohio.org. Thank you for your support and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hey, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to BACC's Transatlantic Insights. I'm your host today, Don Larson. Uh, we've got two members of the British American Chamber of Commerce joining us today. It's Mr. Brian Halliday and Ms. Marin Ritter. Uh, they're both members of the chamber and immigration attorneys. So uh, they've been helping bring people into the U.S. out of the United Kingdom for years and helping our members uh, also send folks back over to the U.K. Welcome to the show, you two. Thank you, Don. Thank you. So, uh, Brian, it's, uh, it's for those of you uh, who are listening here, I've actually got the pleasure of seeing Brian on this interview. Uh, post-pandemic, more and more contact, yes. So, Brian and Brian and Marin, thank you for coming in today. Uh, give the audience a little background on, on yourselves, and then uh, let's talk a little bit about your firm. Okay. Um, I have been practicing immigration law in Cleveland, Ohio, since 1996. Uh, so 25 years, my law school informed me the other day. Um, I work uh, primarily. Did they hit uh, you up for the suitable donation? Of course they did. <laughs> um, I've been working primarily with businesses to bring foreign national workers to the United States and to help those workers get green cards and then ultimately citizenship. Um, I also do some family-based cases, and I work a lot with uh, colleges and universities on faculty and staff. Very good. So, Brian, tell me, uh, how recently has your law school hit you up for a donation? Oh, probably within the last couple of months. I, I, uh, I, I told them I thought that our transaction was already complete. I paid them. They gave me a degree, and done, but they seem to still want more money. <laughs> Uh, you tend to never, they, they always are back at the trough. Uh, you, you think you're done with school and it's not. But at some point in the not too distant future, they'll be looking for your son and more checks from you to run him through the program. <laughs> Undoubtedly. All right, so let's, uh, let's jump into uh, immigration. Uh, most people uh, don't realize the thriving uh, nexus that is Cleveland, Ohio, and how many immigrants we have here. Uh, they're on the order of... Uh, you know, 40,000 Ohioans that are employed by European companies alone. I correct not 40,000, 400,000. I'm off by whole order of magnitude here. So th there's a lot of people in this state uh, that are employed by businesses from, from outside of the U.S., never mind outside of the state. So tell me about immigration law here. What put, uh, what, why did the two of you put down roots here for an immigration law practice? Because the stereotype, of course, is you're on the, you know, you're on the south side of Manhattan, of course. Because that's where everybody flies in through Kennedy, right? And you're looking across the East River as the 747s come jetting in from across the globe. Well, um, I'll take that one, I guess. Uh, Go ahead. All right. Well, as it turns out, Cleveland, Ohio um, is uh, somewhat of a, a central center point uh, for the Midwest with respect to particularly 
businesses that are in manufacturing and uh, any kind of industry that supports manufacturing. Uh, Northeast Ohio builds things. Um, a large uh, segment of our clientele with our firm uh, is in the manufacturing space, uh, either large Fortune 500 companies that have been around a long time uh, or uh, smaller businesses that lend support to those industries. So for that reason, we, we tend to get a fair amount of business uh, in this region of the country. And also since we're kind of halfway between New York and Chicago, more or less, um, we, we have uh, one foot on the East Coast and, and one foot purely in the Midwest. Uh, certainly at the risk of, uh, of dating this program, if anybody's tuning in uh, years from now. Uh, Merrick, uh, dare I ask how bad the last 12 months have been for immigration law and immigration in general uh, of folks trying to get back. And, and I, I'm thinking of uh, the Lennox resignation, quite frankly. Uh, you know, the CEO of just deciding that, you know, at the top of the food chain, he was going to quit his job with how hard it was getting back and forth between here and I believe it was Denmark. Um, immigration has been extremely challenging for the last 12 months. I mean, essentially, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot. Um, you know, if you if you happen to be fortunate enough to have weathered this pandemic in the United States from an immigration perspective, uh, you know, you could continue to work, you could continue to, to do what you need to do. But if you were stuck abroad uh, when things locked down, um, there's a lot of people who still aren't getting back to the United States that have been out since February of 2020. Uh, not non-green card holders, non-citizens, I assume, primarily. Yes, yes. Well, we, we are, we are uh, it's unfortunate for them, but it's, uh, we're lucky that we're not Australia, at least. Well, they got 50,000 citizens, I believe, who still haven't made it home. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad. I mean, travel is horrible, and um, a lot of embassies and consulates around the world are still closed. So, you know, even if you could manage to get an exemption, exception to all of the rules, uh, restrictions on traveling to the United States, you still can't get a visa because the embassies are closed. Um, so we're starting to see that turnaround. Uh, you know, people are starting to, to open things back up and move around again, but it's going to be slow going. Well, certainly from a, from a local, call it state level regulatory environment, uh, I would say we're, we're very much post pandemic. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's only a handful of, of executive orders left across the country. Um, so throw this out to both of you. Uh, now that we are, and I'll, I'll do air quotes here, even though the audience can't see it. We are post pandemic in the United States. Uh, what are you seeing at the federal level? You mentioned the embassies and consulates across the globe are starting to open movement, but what about other activity in the, in the administration about the way they're, they're moving the mountains of paperwork? Uh, in order to move all these immigration cases along? Well, as you know, Marin mentioned, the consular posts, embassies and consulates worldwide were shut down for the majority of 2020, if not you know, virtually all of it. Um, and any casework that would have been processed by those, those uh, consular offices just piled up, it's stacked up. Um, even now, you know, in late June of 2021 in the United States, we were, we're starting to get back to normal, quote unquote, but uh, that's not true uh, for virtually the entire rest of the planet. Um, the United States is doing pretty well getting uh, people vaccinated. 
Uh, the UK has done very well getting people vaccinated. And um, so is Israel, so is Taiwan, uh, New Zealand and Australia. Um, they're getting people vaccinated, but not not as as as, as strong of a rate as we are. Uh, however, they were very very careful about locking down, so they have very very low case numbers. Um, but the rest of the world, um, the they're having a hard time getting vaccine. Uh, as a result, their case numbers are not going down, and a lot of places are really on fire, like India. Um, and um, as a result of that. Uh, the consular offices in those countries, if they're operating at all, are only operating at perhaps 20% capacity. So you've got massive case backlogs, you've got massive uh, uh, demand for these people to travel to the United States because the US economy is up and running and, and, and wants to get, get rolling. Uh, so we need those people here. Um, and the combination is creating for example, I've got clients who are applying for interviews at consulates in places like India uh, to get a visa so they can come here and go to work in a critical sector, uh, say manufacturing, and um, they can't get interviews before, say, February of 2022 uh, at this rate. That's how far off uh, the visa interviews are being pushed. Uh, just crazy what's going on in the labor markets around uh, on an anecdotal piece. I had, I literally drove by a sports bar today that had a gigantic sign out that said signing bonuses cooks $1,000. <laughs> so you ready to flip hamburgers? <laughs> you want a thousand dollars signing bonus for putting hamburgers together? <laughs> Welcome to the United States. I think this is why everybody really wants to come here. <laughs> the good old land of opportunity. As a guy who worked in restaurants from the time he was about 14 years old until he was, you know, almost through college. Um, yeah, a thousand bucks to flip burgers. That's that, I'll, I'm digging that. that. That's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, when you go home at night, you don't wake up in a sweat worried about the paperwork that you did or didn't get done. It's not that bad of a gig from a stress standpoint. <laughs> yeah. You can't take your work home with you. Yeah. No. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but let's uh, let's keep on changes. There's a number of things in the news. Um, uh, for for the listening audience, hey, we're recording this on uh, Thursday. Uh, not on Thursday, but on uh, on Monday the 28th. Uh, I believe tomorrow, Tuesday the 29th, is a big day in the U.S. immigration world. Brian, uh, the the never-ending saga of the H-1Bs. Right. Right. The uh, H-1B visa category is subject to an annual cap. And um, there's a give or take, there's roughly 85,000 H-1B visas, new H-1B visas that can be granted each fiscal year. Um, the demand for them is massive and always exceeds the supply it has in the last, I think, about 12 to 15 years. Um, 304,000 petitions were, or registrations were submitted for those 85,000 spots. Anyway, to your point, Don, um, the deadline to file those is tomorrow. They have to be received by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service by the 30th, and we file these things by Federal Express. Uh, the the uh, immigration agency in the United States has not yet gone digital. We have to file everything on paper. And so Federal Express is going to be carrying... Um, hundreds of thousands, well, about, well, the majority of that 85,000 cap, uh, they'll be uh, delivering tomorrow. 
tomorrow. And Wednesday. Uh, and Wednesday. Dare I ask what your estimates are on the processing of said hundreds of thousands of applications for the limited number of slots that are available? I looked today and they were estimating uh, 2.5 to 4.5 months, but that will change uh, as soon as they get the caseload in uh, and probably be adjusted upward is my guess. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I think that we're, ideally you want to try and get these things approved before October 1st, because that's when the fiscal year begins. But uh, there's usually some hangovers these days and I expect there will be this year. And we'll have to keep our eyes out for that. Uh, there was some other news I was following out there uh, in the myriad of uh, letters and numbers that make up the U.S. immigration system, uh, which was the court ruling on the EB-5 program, which is uh, uh, one of those ones that for some reason I've always – I've followed since you started educating me on it probably about five or six years ago as this alternate path in. So uh, probably most of the audience hasn't heard what the courts have said and, and where the EB-5 world is today in the United States. The EB-5 program was, um, it's an investment-based uh, green card program. The, the idea behind it is that a foreign national can invest a, a sizable amount of money into a United States enterprise, and for that particular investment creates at least 10 full-time jobs for U.S. workers. That's the nature of the program. Um, the uh, amount of money that was required to, uh, the, the amount of the investment uh, at minimum was $500,000. And that was uh, the case in the law for a fair amount of time. Um, the law was enacted in 1990. So you can see how antiquated that figure might be. So as time has marched on, uh, Congress wanted to increase the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the investment amount. And what they did is they pushed that through um, the Department of Homeland Security during the prior administration. Um, and what happened was the, the prior administration increased the, the, the minimum um, investment amounts to, I think it was 1.2 and 2.0 million. Uh, I, I don't quote me on that, but I think it was 1.2 million as a minimum. Uh, and what the case that you're referring to, this federal court case you're referring to, Don, um, what, they, what they did is they found a defect in that process, specifically the uh, people who were in charge of the Department of Homeland Security and also the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service at that time um, were not properly put into their office by the prior administration. So they did not have the authority to make that change. A court found that to be the case. And like that, the amount of investment dropped again to $500,000. However, the EB-5 program as a whole is going to sunset on the 30th of June because it, um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the other part of this problem. Um, the, the EB-5 program uh, has been historically connected to the federal government budget bill. So when the budget bill eventually got passed, the EB-5 program would be re reauthorized as part of that. Last year, it was, um, it was carved off. So now it's a standalone uh, congressional act in order to reauthorize EB-5 and um, it has not yet been reauthorized. The Senate last week tried to reauthorize uh, the bill or the, the program through something called a hotline process, um, which is sort of, a, um, I, I don't understand it really well, but it, it does, it involves a, like a unanimous consent sort of process. One Senator objected, therefore the hotline attempt failed. And uh, now they have to somehow get it, get Congress to actually go take it to the floor and vote on it and pass it. 
Yeah, any idea who the center was? Because I know uh, Senator Grassley out of Iowa was the big proponent for EB five. Um, but I'm uh, I'm I'm curious who the who the who the dissenter was who put the hold on it. Uh, my I will I will have to look that up and get a, a letter off to the senator. Uh, <laughs> I know don't let this one stop. I don't recall. I don't recall off the top of my head. But Grassley is one of the big proponents of EB five. Um, there's two or three senators that are, and uh, he he's one of them. Um, I know that uh, one of the other things in the EB-5 world that, uh, that there's lots of discussion about is the, the concentration of where, uh, where the various offices are going to be so that you can uh, actually qualify under the program. And it's, it's that classic big city versus, you know, New York and Los Angeles want to dominate these two spaces. And, and the whole rest of the country tends to be short, <laughs> I guess, on the EB-5 side. Uh, and, uh, obviously, if it doesn't renew on the end of the month it's, uh, or, or shortly thereafter, it's going to be a moot point. Uh, but have you have you heard any thoughts about the the expansion of the program so that we get a larger national footprint for these? Because um, you know, on, on a personal note, anybody who wants to come to the U.S. and bring a bucket of cash with them and start a business and start hiring people uh, tends to be somebody that I think we should talk quite aggressively to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, real quick, uh, the the issue is that. Um, the way the law is written, clever lawyer, lawyering has made it so that we can identify so-called uh, areas where the investment amount is small. Um, and it's that the, the smaller investment amount is supposed to be reserved for only rural areas or areas where there's a high unemployment rate. These clever lawyers have figured out ways of finding high unemployment rates in the middle of Manhattan, for example, where they build like these <laughs> hotels and the investment amounts are only $500,000. So, um, the uh, that that's where the debate lies because there there are very few of these programs that are actually or projects I should say that are actually occurring in rural areas. The pro, the EB five program was designed to try to attract direct investment to rural areas as part of the process. But what they found in practice on the ground when marketing these processes or these projects to foreign national investors, they don't think that projects in rural areas are necessarily going to be successful and they're therefore not inclined to invest in them. A hotel in New York City, they're inclined to invest in. Uh, some kind of a manufacturing plant in Iowa, they, they, they don't have any interest in. So they just don't sell. That's, that's the problem. And that could be addressed with, with uh, tweaking at the, at the legislative level, but we have yet to see agreement on that in Congress. Uh, there's always uh, some pull of the market forces there. Um, continuing to march down some of the immigration path here, uh, you know, Marin, um, probably, you know, a good 20, 50% of the membership um, at some point in time here has been British expats uh, who've moved to the United States and are now here on green cards. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's, that can be the holy grail, so to speak, that document lets you come back and forth and have that permanent residency. Uh, again, uh, I hate, hate coming back to the post-pandemic comment, but now that we are, you know, again, largely post-pandemic, um, what are you seeing for trends in the way uh, the, the feds are processing green card applications? Uh, and is, is that going to be helping out some of our future members uh, here so we, we can get our... Uh, our new, our aspiring permanent residents and maybe even ultimate citizens uh, in the area and, and participating in the business world. Yes, um, we have actually seen some encouraging trends as far as green card processing is going. Um, as you you may know, the, um, the, the way that immigrant visas are allocated is based on uh, 
a first in a first, a, you know, a place in the line. So there's a queue of people who are eligible to immigrate based on when you start filing your paperwork. Um, that's there is no real queue for people from the UK, um, but for people from other parts of the for the other parts of the world, uh, India, for example, um, those priority dates took a huge jump forward. So we were able to file a lot of green card applications for Indians who've been waiting for 10 years or longer uh, in October of last year. And what we're seeing, especially in those cases, is that um, the Trump administration um, several years ago had decided to forego waiving of employment-based green card interviews at the local immigration office. Um, so even though previous administrations had waived those interviews for many, many years. And so that really slowed down the process in, in completing the green card process and actually getting that little card in your hand. Um, so what we are seeing is that the immigration service does appear to be again waiving those final interviews for green cards. And instead of transferring cases to the local immigration offices in the various locations around the country, they are now adjudicating them by mail and you just get an approval notice in the mail and then you get your cards in the mail. So, I mean, that has seriously uh, decreased processing time uh, made it a lot more convenient for people to get their green cards. So hopefully that's something that continues, but it is an encouraging sign. Uh, again, using uh, the last 12 months was so full of cliches. It's uh, it's going to be a cliche <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost waiting for the movie. Nobody's done a movie yet, right? But you can bet it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. <laughs> you know, It'll be, it'll be the desolate streets. Actually, you know who I hope who, you know, does it first? Uh, it, it would be best if somebody actually made something light and comedic about it, wouldn't it? So how about, how about a Mel Brooks movie about, <laughs> about 2020, right? You let him do the deadpan humor in it. Let's not actually have it be a zombie movie. <laughs> and look that, like that it would was, be uh, fun. A Mel Brooks pandemic <laughs> movie would be awesome. And I'm sure Mel is a subscriber to the program. So, Mr. Brooks, if you're out, when you're out there listening to us, uh, we're, we're happy to support you <laughs> in getting the movie together. Uh, but uh, shifting off of uh, popular culture, because uh, everybody will line up and go to the Mel Brooks movie, regardless of whether we suggested the theme to it or not. Uh, are there any other, uh, you know, trends, developments in the immigration space that, that either of you ha have noticed? Uh, you're the real experts. I read the headlines all the time, but I'm certainly not you know, even ankle deep in it, never mind neck deep, uh, trying to do all these filings and get my customers moving back and forth. What else should the audience know about uh, as, as the wheels of all the systems start to come to life again? Awkward pause. That's a Don good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about the flip side? Um, you know, you don't have an office in the UK, obviously, but uh, are there any trends or things that you've heard about the other direction? Because we do want Americans, you know, headed out of the, the land of the big PX to use the World War II quote. Um, it's kind of hard to get on an airplane and get to Europe these days. Um, have you seen anything out of Whitehall uh, about the, the visas process in order to get your, your right to work in the UK? So if you're a big U.S. multinational, are, is there anything about getting into the United Kingdom to support whether that's, you know, the main headquarters or it's an American subsidiary over there? 
My my gut is telling me, and you know, this could be completely wrong. So I'm, you know, just throwing it out there. But my gut is telling me that that we're going to see a lot more people coming the other way, a lot more businesses coming the other way. And I have started working with a number of clients who want to open offices in the U.S., uh, U.K. companies that want to office open offices in the U.S. Um, I think that a lot of businesses are waiting to see how Brexit kind of settles down uh, in the UK before they really want to make a big commitment to go the other way. Um, But I think we just have to wait and see. I mean, I think that business is going to look different post-pandemic. I think that the way that people travel and interact is going to look a little different. Um, So we'll see what happens. Uh, that, that crystal balls, uh, always difficult. But if I, if I can quote the prime minister, remember Brexit is over. They have Brexited <laughs> as prime minister Johnson says, uh, and it's, and it's time to get to work for sure. Uh, but, uh, there's, there's particularly, uh, what's going to be happening with the, the UK Irish border is going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, um, I'm, you know that that could be the subject for a whole whole podcast in and of itself. But having two radically different uh, immigration and trade systems in one nation um, is is not a recipe for uh, civility and smooth sailing. Right. So, all right. So uh, it has been uh, great seeing both of you here uh, again because I I can't see you here today even though all of our listeners are unable to uh, to see this visually. Um, I appreciate you joining us here on, on Transatlantic Insights. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody that we've got a number of events coming. So if you're anywhere near Ohio, uh, make sure you're, you're visiting our LinkedIn page. There's our Passport Professional events are going on. Uh, next week, the first week of July, is going to be a LinkedIn function where the, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs is speaking. And we've got a major event coming up in August. It's the 21st annual BACC Ryder Cup of the Council General of Her Majesty's Government. Uh, Mr. Alan Gagabushian is going to be here. We're doing a briefing on the UK free trade agreement, uh, where we're at in the process of dotting the I's and crossing the T's post Brexit, Ms. Ritter. <laughs> so, uh, if you're, if you're out there and you're nurse, please come join us for a live event and subscribe to the podcast. Merritt and Brian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast, and we hope you enjoyed our second episode. You can find out more about Brian and Marin's firm and the upcoming events we have in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and for more information about the Chamber, please visit us at baccohio.org or email us at info at baccohio.org.